perform an action that is so difficult. We can't even think about it. Killing his own family members. Something none of us would ever have to do in our entire life, as Sittal just said. Compared to what Arjuna has to do, what are our actions that we perform every day? Dilemmas that we have, how are they compared to what Arjuna has to do? Does it compare in any way? Does anyone have to make tough decisions like that and perform actions like that? Anyone here? We don't. Now, this knowledge given out to Arjuna, you'll find after 18 chapters, he is able to perform his duty. Right now he's dejected. Chapter one, you all had to endure, was his dejection. He couldn't even think straight. He couldn't even stand up. After 18 chapters, Krishna's knowledge allowed him to perform his duty, which was an extreme. Now, if this knowledge helped him to perform his duty satisfactorily, how can this, how powerful is this knowledge? And if we abide, use it in our life with our little menial tasks that we have to perform, how, how it can help us. So Sage Vyasa gives an extreme example to say, look, how powerful this knowledge is. It helps a person perform this duty, righteousness against unrighteousness, regardless of who is, who is in that other side of the army who's unrighteous. But with the power of this knowledge Krishna gave out, Arjuna, he was able to fulfill his duty. Now, can you imagine if we had this knowledge? Would we have any issues in life if we applied this knowledge? Doesn't matter what we come across. No matter what we come across. So that's the significance. We only understand the power if they give us an extreme example. And the whole of Gita, they give extreme examples because it makes our issues insignificant. That's the power in knowledge, in the right knowledge, which is what we're learning. Some of you have already mentioned that you've only been to some class, a few classes. And it's already helped you make better decisions. It's already helped you to be more happier. It's already helped you to be a better human being. And you've only had a small, we've only on chapter two. So imagine after another 16 chapters, when you understand it more, your life, your life can change. I know people's lives have changed completely through this knowledge. I know people who have completely changed their lives after learning this subject. So, that's the significance. Is that okay? So, any clarifications? Any questions? And the thing is, you can't learn this knowledge in school or college or university. There's no GCSE in the Gita in this country anyway, or in spiritual knowledge. So, that's why it's relevant. That's why it's important for us to understand a bit of this knowledge. Yeah, so.
Great. Any other questions? Good question. Any other questions? Good. So next two verses we're going to cover, verse 29 and verse 30, are the last two verses of topic two. Topic one was the, what was topic one? The yoga of Arjuna's despondency. Topic, uh, chapter one was talking about Arjuna's despondency. Chapter two, Krishna is giving him the highest knowledge. And the topic one of chapter two was... Topic one was the ending of Arjuna's despondence condition. And topic two, which we're just finishing today, is the indestructibility of the body. So verse 29 and 30, we're going to cover now are the last two verses of topic two, the indestructibility of the self, meaning the self, Atman, never dies. That's what Krishna is trying to explain to Arjuna. So we'll start with verse 29. Ascharyavat Translation. One sees this as a wonder. So also another speaks of this as a wonder. Another hears of this as a wonder. And though having heard, none knows this at all. It's a cryptic verse. Krishna quotes from the Katopanishad. So this is another verse from the Upanishad. All the verses in the Upanishads are all cryptic. Hence, it doesn't make sense to us. Now it says, this, it uses the term this. One sees this as a wonder. Once again, capital T. What does this mean? What does capital T this means? Yeah, Dharmesh? The self. The self. Exactly. This meaning God, capital T. He states that one sees the self as a wonder. One hears of the self as a wonder. One speaks of the self as a wonder, but none can experience the self. 
Why is that? Why can't we experience the self? Any idea? Any idea going on? We don't have the equipment for it. The self cannot be perceived by the human equipments. Simple as that. You cannot contact God through our five senses. We cannot conceive God with the mind. We can't conceive God with the intellect. So since we cannot perceive it with the body, mind, and intellect, God remains a mystery, a wonder to us. That's why we find it so difficult to understand what God is. But today, in this verse, we're going to find out how we can perceive God through our material body. So why, what does it mean by wonder? Any idea what, what it means by wonder? What does wonder mean? In normal English, what does wonder mean? Yeah, Vinay, what does wonder mean? To think, to imagine. To imagine, okay. Yeah, that's the one, one way of uh, explaining what wonder means. Any other way? Yeah, Dramesh. The beauty, excitement of the world. Okay. So I'll give you an example. A simple example. You go to a show, let's say Vegas, you see a magician, David Copperfield. Some of you may have been. You go there and he does these illusions. You know, one of the illusions, he chops a lady in half. And they take one half, head half to the one side of the stage. You have a leg half to the other side of the stage and they're still wiggling them. You've all seen it. Legs and arms are moving. You say, wow, wow, how did he do that? The mind and intellect are in wonderment. What a wonder. Why? Anyone? Why is it a wonder? Yeah, Nilam. It's something that we can't explain. So it's, it, it, um, there's like an emotion, it's emotive and we can't okay, explain yeah. it with our mind and intellect. Perfect. It's a wonder because the mind and intellect does not understand how it is done. Go with me. You know that you cannot chop a lady, a person in half and put them back together. We know that. But you don't know how it's done, so it's wonder to you. It's an illusion. You think, wow, the mind and intellect cannot understand it. So I'll give you another example. If I say to you, the Great Wall of China, you have never, and if you have never heard of it before, yeah, you don't know what it is, but your intellect can understand. You know the meaning of great. Correct? Okay, well, you know the meaning of great. You know what a wall is. It's made of bricks. You've got one in the garden. You know China is a country. So with this, you have some idea that it must be a big wall in China somewhere. 
mind and intellect can work it out. It's not a wonder. That's the difference. When, the, when it goes beyond the mind and intellect, no understanding, doesn't know how it's done, it's a wonder. So we have done maybe 150 classes. I have lost count. Some of you I know have been to all of them, these classes. And what do we talk about in each class? God, self, Atman. Even after all these classes, we actually still don't know what God is. We can't put a finger on it. Even after listening to these great masters, self-realized masters, we're still unable to experience or know God. And as we said, because God is beyond our material equipments, beyond our understanding. If anyone says they know God, they don't know what they're talking about. So then how can we understand God? We're all here trying to understand God. How can we understand God? How can we understand God? Any ideas? Directly we can't experience the self of God. Then how can we, being in the world? Vijay how can we? Uh, I was going to say spiritual path. Spiritual path. Yeah, we're all on the spiritual path. But it's difficult because we can't gauge what God is. But, but there, is a, there is a way we can. How? Any ideas? Benita? So it's through, like, um, if you, I don't know, like, maybe if you think what nature is, how it's created, mm -hmm. the things that are created by um, God maybe can help I don't know how. absolutely so best way is through God's expressions manifestations God's creations you see a body, mind and intellect five senses can perceive them because they are in the world we can contact the world with our senses we're equipped to contact the world. So through God's expressions, manifestations, manifestations, creations, we can get some idea of what God is. The world is a superimposition on God. Therefore, manifestations of God is all around us. Divinity is everywhere, but we fail to recognize it. That's the problem. So what does the world is a superimposition on God mean? Any idea? We're saying that we can contact God through its manifestations. Because this world is a superimposition on God. What does that mean? Any idea? Any ideas? What the superimposition? Neelam? Is it that everything that we see 
is mm -hmm. an overlay of what is unseen. So just having that awareness that there's more to everything that our mind and intellect can't understand. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, you're halfway there. Very good. Any clearer and clearer explanation? What does it mean? The world is superimposition. I can't even say the word. The world is a superimposition on God. What does that mean? I need to consult. So superimposition literally means it's covered. For example, I gave this example before. A boy goes in the garden and he sees a snake. Dad, dad, he runs in. I saw a snake, I saw a snake. Six foot long, four inches thick, black in color. Please come out, have a look. Dad goes out and he sees something lying on the ground, six foot long, four inches thick, black in color. He goes closer, pokes it. It's not a snake, it's a rope. The father sees it's a rope, but the boy sees it's a snake. The snake is superimpositioned on the rope. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not actually a snake, it's a rope. You can say that the snake has the same qualities as the rope, hence it can be mistaken for a snake. So what superimposition means is this world is God. This world is superimpositioned on God, just as the snake is superimpositioned on the rope. Was there a rope there or a snake? What was really there? Anyone? What was really there? Was it a snake or a rope? What, the boy saw a snake, but it was actually a rope. There was no snake, it was only a rope. We see the world when it's actually God. Why? Because of our ignorance. The boy, because of his ignorance, no knowledge of the rope, saw a snake. So as we get more knowledge of God, we start seeing God everywhere, divinity rather than the world. This is what it means. So superimposition simply means it's covered. So the world is God, just as the rope is, the rope is a snake. So what this verse is saying is so rather than trying to understand God directly, we can start through its creations. You see the wonder of Mount Everest. Wow, what a sight. You see Niagara Falls, you're amazed. God created this. The river Ganges, so beautiful. All of us know that no man can create these things. Man cannot create anything like similar even to this. Go to Dubai, see all these buildings, nothing compares to 
the Ganges or the Himalayan mountain range, Grand Canyon. So you see that and you think, wow, God, you say that without knowing what you're saying. So as you become more spiritually developed, you need less of an expression to recognize divinity. You see divinity everywhere as you spiritually develop. You see a sunrise every morning reminds you of God or a sunset. And as you develop more and more to a higher level spiritually, you don't need such an expression. Wordsworth, in his poem, The Daffodils, talks about seeing a valley of daffodils in the Lake District. And in his poem, he talks about God, how it reminded him of God. So through its manifestations, creations, God's creations, you can identify with God. And when you reach a really high state of spiritual development, everything around you reminds you of God. You peel a banana. Wow, amazing. Who created this banana? No matter where you pick a banana, you can eat it without washing it. You have thought about that? You can just peel it and eat it. The skin keeps the fruit clean. How is it possible? Just peel it and eat it. Who created that? You go in Sainsbury, you pick, you pick 12 bananas without thinking, how is it possible? You don't wash it, nothing. As you develop spiritually, everything starts to remind you of that divinity. Even your worst enemy reminds you of God. Poor guy, bad bastards. So why does it all remind you of God? Because you now understand this whole world is a superimposition on God. Everything is God. So then everything in the world reminds you of that divinity, if you are spiritually developed. So someone who's not, they need something like a Grand Canyon or Himalayan mountain range or Niagara Falls to say, wow, God, look at this. But as you develop more and more, less of an expression reminds you of God. Any questions? Dharmesh, does it make sense? So through this creation, we can get some idea of what God is. So, any question? Okay. Sales going to read the commentary. Here is another instance where the verse is taken from an Upanishad. The contents of this verse comes from chapter one, section two, verse seven of the Katapanishad. One sees the self as a wonder, another speaks of the self as a wonder, yet another hears of the self as a wonder. Even after hearing, none experiences the self. The Supreme Self Atman is the core of the human personality. It is eminent and transcendent. It is omnipotent, omniscient and omnipresent. It is infinite, beyond the reach of the human equipments. The human senses cannot perceive the self, the mind cannot feel it, the intellect cannot conceive it. 
Anything that lies beyond the reach of the body, mind and intellect is a wonder, a marvel. The layman tries to reach God, the self, through his material equipments. In the end, he is filled with wonderment because God baffles all human perceptions, emotions and reflections. Even after having heard about God from the experience of self-realized masters or having read about God from authoritative Vedantic texts, none knows or experiences God. God ever remains a great mystery, a marvel, a wonder. God is everywhere. The world is a mere superimposition upon God. Yet none knows God because of the limitations of the human equipments. Though unknown, one can tune into the divinity in the world by feeling the wonder of nature. As a person advances in his spiritual development, he experiences this expression of wonderment more and more. At the lowest stage of development, he needs a spectacular expression of nature like the vast Himalayas or the Grand Canyon to notice the manifestation of God in this world. As he advances in his spiritual development, he does not need such spectacular expressions to recognize divinity. A sunrise or a sunset can inspire him spiritually. Continuing further on his spiritual path, when he reaches a very high state of self-development, the mere sight of a flower or a fruit can transport him to a spiritual ecstasy. In the final state of spiritual development, all these wondrous expressions, experiences culminate in the transcendent knowledge and realization of the self. Thank you. So next, you need to develop yourself so that next time you peel a banana, you're in spiritual ecstasy. And then you know you've reached it. You see? Never look at banana the same way now. Spiritual ecstasy. Any questions? Verse 13. <laughs> This indweller in the bodies of all is ever indestructible, O Bharata. Therefore, you should not grieve for any creature. So this is the last verse, chapter topic two. Now, having explained to Arjuna from all different angles, Krishna, in the last verse of topic two, summarizes to Arjuna. Krishna says, Arjuna, the same self, 
Atman in you is in all living creatures. The self, Atman, does not die. It is everlasting. Only the physical body dies. You are the Atman and not this body, mind and intellect. You are the Atman, not this body, mind, intellect. The Atman is your true identity, your real personality. Therefore, Arjuna, there's no reason for you to grieve. There's no reason for you to grieve for any creature, living or dead. So do your duty and fight. This verse is a summary to the whole of topic two. Atman is your true identity. Atman never dies. No need to grieve for any creature, living or dead. That's it. Emma. Emma, can you read the commentary? Yes. Krishna starts his sermon to Arjuna from verse 11 with a powerful statement. The wise grieve neither for the living nor for the dead. Subsequently, in verses 25 to 28, Krishna appeals personally to Arjuna not to grieve. He reasons from different angles to point out the futility of grieving over the inevitable in the present verse, he draws his final conclusion. Therefore, O Arjuna, you should not grieve for any creature. This indweller refers to the self. The one self dwells in all the creatures of the world. These creatures are numberless. Atman, the self in them all, is one and the same. The bodies of beings, beings perish, but not Atman. Atman is the real identity of each of these beings. It, exi it exists eternally. It is indestructible. Therefore, there is no need to lament for any creature, whether living or dead. Thank you, Hema. That's the last verse of topic two. Any questions? It's like the conclusion, the summary of topic two. Great. So now, topic three, your duty to act. Now, this is relevant to all of us. So Krishna has explained to Arjuna not to grieve because the Atman never dies. And now he tries to persuade him to do his duty and act. Your duty to act, this is topic three. So next 10 verses, Krishna explains to Arjuna, do your duty. Arjuna, you're a kshatriya, a warrior. It is your duty to fight. It's your duty to fight this righteous war. So he's 10 verses to try to explain to Arjuna and persuade him to fight. Verse 31. Swadharma 
navikam pitumarhasi tarmyati yuttacheyonyat shatriyasya navidyate further looking at your own duty you should not waver for there is nothing better for a kshatriya than a righteous war So why should Arjuna do his duty? Why should Arjuna do his duty? Krishna is going to explain to him why to do his duty. In life, all of us, we have a certain duty to perform. We have certain situations occur in our lives which stops us from doing these duties. So... Next 10 verses explain why it is very important to fulfill our duties, regardless of what happens in life. It explains to us why and how we should fulfill our duty. This entire universe functions on certain principles. One of them is the pairs of opposites, birth and death. And some unknown factor that we call G-O-D keeps the world perfectly balanced based on these laws. You all understand that now, don't you? From studying so far, there is some higher entity that keeps everything in balance, this whole world, this whole universe. Arjuna has no understanding of these laws. He has not a clue. Therefore, Arjuna should not interfere with nature and should perform his obligations. He doesn't realize this. Arjuna is a Kshatriya, a warrior. The nature of a Kshatriya is to fight. Nature of a Brahmin is to teach. Higher caste, huh? Give knowledge. Nature of a Kshatriya is to fight. And here is a righteous war. See, there's righteous wars and unrighteous wars. We all know nowadays there are so many unrighteous wars. World War II started by Hitler. Would you say that was a righteous war? Was it good against evil? Millions died for what? A soldier fighting for the German army might question, why are we fighting this war? Who is the enemy? You couldn't blame him for asking that question. But here, the Mahabharata war, the righteous is, is fighting the unrighteousness. There is good and there is evil, and that is clear. There's no question about it. Bharavas are evil, Bandavas are good. Arjuna is a warrior fighting for the righteous side. Is fighting for the good of the people of Kurukshetra. An opportunity for him to perform his duty. He's equipped to perform this duty, but he doesn't understand. He cannot see clearly due to his attachments. So he's, he's prepared, equipped, nature, everything is ready for him to fight a righteous war. 
see, in life, we all have different vasanas. Yes, you all know what vasanas are now. Different nature. These vasanas mold us to the person we are. You all have certain duties in life. Person with teaching vasanas teaches. Person with medicine vasanas becomes a doctor. Person with business vasanas does business. A farmer grows crops. Finance vasanas becomes an accountant. Housewife looks after the house, children. So all of us have different duties in life. Duties that we all need to perform. It's like a 72-piece orchestra playing in a band. Everyone has to play their instruments correctly, properly. And if they all play the instruments correctly, what do we have? Sweet music, lovely melody. Similarly, if we all play our role in life and do our duties, we all have a society, a nation, a whole world that runs smoothly. So Krishna in topic three from verse 31 to 40 appeals to Arjuna to perform his obligatory duty as a Kshatriya and fight. This is a theme. There is nothing better for a Kshatriya than a righteous war. What are you waiting for? Any questions? Venita? Verse 11 to 30 speaks about the indestructibility of the embodied self. The real self never perishes. Only the external bodies are constantly born and they die. The whole universe is a wonderful blend of birth and death. Some unseen hand appears to orchestrate beautifully the rhythm of existence and non-existence. Yet, Arjuna foolishly attempts to interfere with the general patterns of the world. Arjuna has no concept of the scheme of things and beings that maintain the universe. This implies that Arjuna should not try to interfere with the general patterns of the cosmos. He must concentrate on, the, on his obligatory duty. Arjuna is a Shastriya, warrior. His duty is to fight and not waver. A righteous war now faces him. Wars are not necessarily righteous, but here in this case of the Mahabharata war, Arjuna has the opportunity to defend a righteous cause. A Shastriya looks for nothing better, Krishna appeals to Arjuna to examine the situation from that angle and fulfill his obligatory duty by fighting the righteous war. The appeal to perform his duty runs through the third topic covering verse 31 to 40. Thank you. He doesn't understand his, it's a righteous war. He just sees his family members on the opposite side. He, don't see, he can't see the evil. Okay, so they're evil, but... How can I kill my uncles and granddad and, and all my family members? He doesn't see it as his duty yet. 
Any questions? Yeah, so. So if, if, if we're thinking about the time of the Mabarak, hmm. there was obviously a caste system that was followed or it was more prominent. In this day and age, there is no caste system. Mm. Yeah, our vastness determines our personality, like you said. Okay. Um, so in, in, in relation to uh, that, with again, the teachings, would it be that, so for example, the World War II, okay? We're talking about 17, 18 year olds that were picked up and they were farmer boys. They didn't have vastness to fight, yeah? Mm -hmm. you, you had, nobody had a choice. You were picked, you had to go and fight, okay? They didn't have these vastness. How can we say that it was their obligatory duty or they were following their hmm. duty? It's questionable. Yeah. So what is your duty? What is your duty at the end of the day? You can say my duty is to my family. My duty is to my country, to my community. My duty is to humanity. What are your values? So it all depends on that. During this Mahabharata war, the great thinkers created four castes, Sudra, Vaisha, Kshatriya, Brahmins. And these four castes, people were categorized based on their nature to perform these duties the best they can. And there was a reasoning behind creating those costs. Nowadays, it has no meaning. You're born a Brahmin, you are a Brahmin. Doesn't matter if your nature is to be a Brahmin or not. You're born a Kshatriya. You don't necessarily have the nature of fighting anymore just because you're born to a Kshatriya. In those days, they were put there based on their nature. So therefore, Arjuna is a fighter, a warrior, Kshatriya, because that's his nature. In this day and age, we don't have the caste systems in this country or in the West, but people still perform their duties based on their nature. It's just not recognized as a caste system. People aren't here to put you in a category. You do what's right for you. Yeah. So this is how it works in the West. Now, so it'll last about World War II. What are your values? My value is to my family, my country, my community. Yes. In certain situations, regardless of your nature, you have to perform your duty. You may not be any good at it. These 16, 70 year old boys went to fight in the front war. They'd never picked up a gun before. Is it right or wrong? We're not here to judge. But they were there defending what they believed in. Is it a responsibility? A responsibility. We all have responsibilities. We all have a duty. Sometimes it may go against our nature, but we have to perform it because of the situation. But generally in life, we would follow our vasanas, our nature. Does that uh, make sense to everyone? 
There are normal duties based on your vasanas, and there's sometimes special duties which you have to perform, regardless of your vasanas. Someone attacks you in the alleyway, you've never fought before. You're going to fight for your life. You can't say, I don't have vasanas for fighting, therefore. Yeah, you, it's a matter of survival, special duty, you have to do it. Yeah, Carol. I was just going to ask. I think, I think also from time to time, your 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 vasanas would change, right? Like, uh, I don't know. Maybe when I was young, I wanted to be a footballer, and uh, figure out that that's probably not the, not going to work out. And so, what I'm trying to say is basically, for example, at World War Two time, maybe you're not a fighter, but when you understand and uh, assess the situation, your vasana might change. I guess maybe just like this pandemic, right? We all have had to change and, and adhere to, to to the rules so that we can, you know, f- follow the rules so that we can protect uh, the greater good, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So there are certain things that we need to do, uh, adapt to because of the environment, but your base nature will still remain the same. See, you're an accountant or a businessman, you'll remain that. You'll always be thinking. You may not be doing business, but your mind will still be business-minded. You look at something, you think, how much money can I make out of this? Or how much money is that guy making? He's selling these items. You know, it's got nothing to do with you, but your mind works in that way because that's your nature. Let's see. But there are special duties that you, we all need to perform in life. But the whole idea here is to act based on your sudharma, which is the next verse. And there's a reason for it. Right. Have we read 31? We finished 31. Yeah, she has. Uh, yeah, Vanita, you read, haven't you? Yeah. Okay, so verse 32. Yadarchaya chopapanam svargatvaramavapratam sukhina shatriya partha labante yuttamidrasam yadrachaya chopapanam svargatvaram pavaratam sukhina shat Triya parka labante yuddhamidrasam. Happy are the Kshatriyas, O Partha, who get such a battle that comes unsought as an open door to heaven. What a verse. Happy are the Kshatriyas, O Partha, who get such a battle that comes unsought as an open door to heaven. We all want a door to heaven. So, as we said, Kshatriya, warrior, soldier, is to fight in battle. That's what they're trained, trained for. Arjuna had training to be a warrior from young age. So he's trained to be a warrior, but that doesn't mean you start looking for a war to fight now. Now I'm trained as a warrior, let me go and find a war. I need to fight. It doesn't work that way. Kshatriya's inherent nature, Swadharma, is to fight. 
He's had all the training. And he now has an opportunity to function according to his Fadalma, his nature. When you function on nature, your nature, you reduce your desires. We all come with X amount of desires. When you do your obligatory duty, you function based on your nature, your desires, you, the result is you reduce your desires. Yeah. Arjuna has an opportunity to perform his duty as a warrior, reducing his desires. So Krishna tells him not to hesitate. It's a righteous war that you are fighting. And for you, a Kshatriya, a warrior, there's no higher opportunity to perform your duty, to reduce your desires. Krishna points out to Arjuna, the way you are behaving it does not fit a person of your caliber. You're a highly decorated warrior. It's not fit for you to be dejected in this manner. Oh, Partha, you get such a battle that comes unsought as an open door to heaven. Open door to heaven. What does this open door to heaven mean? Anyone? Any idea what this open door to heaven means? What is heaven? What is hell? Open door to heaven. What does it mean? Anyone? Yeah, Vanita? Does it mean that if he does what his uh, sodharma is, then he won't have to come back? Uh, maybe. If he exists all his desires, maybe. Anybody, anybody else? What is this? Heaven. Open door to heaven. Arunaman? Is it when you get a chance to uh, reduce your desires by performing as I know your obligatory duties? And yeah. so you're becoming you on the road to self-realization? Yes, eventually, absolutely. But immediately, heaven and hell, they're not actually places. They're not places that one goes to when one dies. No one's there to judge after you die. You go to hell, you go to heaven. There's no such places. They're mental states. Mental states of the mind right here in the world. See, if you are mentally agitated, you are said to be in hell. Yeah, agitations. You have no control of your personality. You say, I'm in hell. I feel like hell, literally. If you are peaceful, happy, you say, I'm in heaven. No agitations means peaceful, calm, happy. Does everyone understand the difference? Hell, agitations. Heaven, no agitations, calm, peaceful. So you're saying that basically he's going to kill all his relatives, but he's not going to feel any resentment or any pity over it after? We don't know until 18th chapter, yeah? Okay. Right now, he can't even think of it. Yeah, but 
let's apply it to our lives because this is what matters. Arjuna will deal with it in his best way. But heaven and hell for us, when we're mentally agitated, we're in hell. When we're peaceful and happy, content, we're in heaven. So when you perform your duty with dedication to a higher ideal, without your selfish ego, without selfish desires, when you perform your duty in that way, you're calm and peaceful. You say you're in heaven. I'll explain it. I'll give you an example. When you perform your duty with selfishness, egoistic, what can I get by performing this action? The result is you're agitated. The mind is not calm. You're in hell. Agitation means hell. You're not happy. You're agitated. You're not happy. Simple as that. I'll give you an example. I take these classes. The thought behind this action right now could be, this is my duty to take these classes. I've been blessed with this knowledge. Some higher power is directing me to share this knowledge with like-minded people. I surrender to this higher power and I perform my duty to the best of my ability. Result, as long as I've given my 100%, after each class, I'm satisfied, happy, peaceful, mentally. You can say I'm in heaven. I've done my duty perfectly well. The other way, I can take the same class with an egoistic, selfish desire. I have this knowledge. I want to be famous, rich. After each class, I think only 25 people joined. When will I get more people? By now, I should have at least 100. No one is contributing any money to me. What do they think? I invested all this time for nothing. 10 pounds, everyone has to pay. Everyone must bring at least one more person from next week. Otherwise, I'll stop these classes. After every class, I'll be mentally agitated. I'll be in hell. So how do you do your duty? That's the question. After you do your duty, how do you want to feel? Happy or sad? Agitated or not agitated? Depends on how you do your action, how you do your duty. This is really important for everyone. Just do the best you can and that's it. And there's another reason that you need to do this. In the last paragraph, which I don't know if it's going to read, it says, Therefore, this verse appeals to Arjuna to fight this righteous war and gain the peace and happiness of heaven. It means no agitation. When the mind reaches the ultimate state of peace and bliss, one gains the supreme state of self-realization or God-realization. So what that last line means is if you perform your duty as what I ought to do in life without ego and selfish desires, the result is your mind is peaceful and happy. You're in heaven. And the reason this is important is because if you are mentally calm and peaceful, only then can you meditate. 
Only through meditation can you reach the state of self-realization. Hence, it's important to do your duty in this way. Because when you're calm, you can meditate. When you meditate, it's a gateway to self-realization. So you need to start practicing that from now. Do your duty with no selfish desire, no ego. A Kshatriya's warrior's nature makes him ideal for fighting in battle. That does not mean he seeks enmity, engenders hatred, or initiates war. But when a war is inevitable and its cause a righteous one, a Kshatriya goes unquestioning to battle. A righteous war faces Arjuna. He has, in the Mahabharata war, an excellent opportunity to function according to his Swadharma, one's inherent nature, and fulfill his obligatory duties to society and the country. As a Kshatriya, he should readily avail himself of the opportunity to fight an unsought and righteous war. Instead, he responds with depression and dejection, refusing to fight. Krishna is drawing his attention to the role of Kshatriyas and the dishonorable stance he has taken at this crucial moment. The verse mentions heaven as the fruit of action of a true Kshatriya. Heaven and hell are not geographical places, but mental states. When a man performs his obligatory duties with dedication to a higher ideal, devoid of ego and egocentric desires, he gains mental peace and happiness. In this sense, he goes to heaven. Conversely, when a person acts egoistically with selfish desires, he becomes mentally agitated and unhappy. His state of mind puts him in hell. Therefore, this verse appeals to Arjuna to fight this righteous war and gain the peace and happiness of heaven. When the mind reaches the ultimate state of peace and bliss, one gains the supreme state of self-realization or God-realization. Thank you, Arjuna. To your question about Arjuna after killing everyone, how would he be in heaven? See, it depends on the ideal that he's fighting for. If he's fighting for himself, yeah, no. If he's fighting for the people of Kurukshetra to bring righteousness back into society, in his country, in his world, where he lives, yes, and he's doing for that reason, then why would he be agitated? It's his duty to do that. It's for the greater good and for the benefit of society, not his personal view. So there is no reason for him to be agitated thereafter. Yeah. Any questions? So you see these verses, how powerful they are. One verse tells you how to act in the world based on your nature without egoistic notions and fight and uh, uh, perform your duty for the greater good. One verse tells you how to live your life and you'll be in heaven. So if we're thinking about 
agitation and peace. Sometimes we're not even acting, but certain events occur mm. that would make us feel sorrow, agitation, unrest. Yeah, that's not because we've acted selfishly or anything. It's just an occurrence that has occurred. Mm -hmm. If we're thinking about um, the mind being agitated and, and the idea of being able to contemplate on the self. So any time that the mind is caught up in the world, mm -hmm. it's not able to concentrate on the self. Is that what you're saying? Um, no, what, what we're simply saying is that if the mind is agitated, you can't think of anything higher. Yeah. Because it's caught up in the world. Yeah. You don't have the clarity. And you need an unagitated mind. See, if I'm agitated about something that happened this morning, how can I conduct this class properly? Constantly, my mind will be on, uh, why did this person do this to me? Why did this person do that to me? Why well, see the news and there's something going on? I don't watch any news, nothing in the morning before this class. Nothing must agitate me before I take this class. Otherwise, where's my mind? My mind should be only on how can I perform my duty 100%. Otherwise, I couldn't even answer any questions if my mind is on something else. So therefore, the minute the mind is agitated about anything, you can't concentrate. And it says that you have to have a peaceful and happy mind in order to reach the self, to, be, to reach the ultimate goal of self-realization. And if that's your goal, then you need to develop your intellect to be able to control the mind. It doesn't get caught up in the world. Something happening somewhere and you're agitated. That's your mind. You don't know why it's happened, who's done it, what's the reason. You hear about the Mahabharat war. You don't live in that area, you live somewhere else. You get agitated, all these people are dying. You have no idea what's the reason for this Mahabharat war. The good, the evil, you have no idea. So you, we get agitated about stuff unnecessarily without actually knowing what's going on. So just leave it. Do your duty the best you can. Worry about yourself. Any questions? So it's a lot of uh, deep knowledge there. So no class for next two weeks, Christmas festivities. We will resume on 9th of January. We will be in lockdown, who knows? But regardless, the mind is on Christmas, not on this knowledge. Um, Tuesday, we can have a group discussion this Tuesday. If people want to have it, please post saying, yes, I'll be there, and then I'll be there. No post, no class. Any questions? You all look ready for bed now. So have a lovely Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll see you in January. <laughs>